Welcome back to ATBS, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick, and I'm thrilled to be here. My guest today joins us for the second time. The first episode with Chris was Oh Search, Oh Yeah, and that episode has been downloaded more than any other of the 25 episodes we've released to date. Chris Fisher and Oh Search have just returned from Expedition Nova Scotia, so I thought it would be a good time to follow up with Chris. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Matt Seiler here, lover of a good competition. One of the other guests on Jeff's phenomenal podcast threw a gauntlet trying to make his episode the most popular on the phenomenal ATBS, the podcast series. Being the frequent guest on the only sub-series, SFAO, I want to make sure that I win. And by winning, Jeff wins. And by Jeff winning, we all win. So please like, share, own, make sure that it gets the popularity it demands as ATBS rules the world. Chris Fisher, welcome back to ATBS, the podcast and the pod ship, and you're back off of O-Search, your ship. How the heck are you, man? I'm good, man. It's good to be home. You know, when you've, I had to swing through New York for a couple days on the way back to do a thing with Jeff Glore at CBS, who's become a good friend, who's been, you know, looking after things. So I got home after about 30, 30 days on the road. And, you know, it's kind of when you get back home, it's not really, you're not totally off guard. You know, I think that a lot of times, you know, you're at sea for 28 days and we'll talk about what happened at that, but there's a level of just being on top of making sure everyone's safe and alive and all the work goes well. When you make your way home, you finally don't come off of that until you're kind of in your house. And I've only been here a handful of days. And so I felt a lot more relief when I got home from this trip than I have from most of the previous expeditions. And I'm sure this conversation will illustrate why. So it is great to be home. I bet it is. You know, I know you're an adventurer and an expedition leader and a couple of things. One, I just want to mention that I thought you guys and your team you know, aside from the scientific work and dealing with all the things that you dealt with out there, tropical depressions and storms and all those things, and maybe I'm just tuning into it, but you coming out into the world from the ship, sharing what was going on in darn near real time, in many cases was fantastic. We, on the outside, get a little glimpse of that. And then it's no damn wonder it takes a little while to you know, settle when you get home and then, and then be like, okay, I'm, I'm home. I'm not responsible for all these people right now and everybody's safety and all the things that you have to do while you're out there. So I get it. Yeah. And I mean, I got two great partners in that captain Brett McBride and captain Dave Stevenson that obviously do a lot of that work, but you know, they're so busy doing what they do that sometimes you just try to step back and have, you know, make sure you're looking at the whole thing they really carry the heavy load on really, you know, making sure people stay safe, you know, and alive and get back to the dock. Well, welcome home. It's good to be home. It's good to be home, man. You know, you, you talk about 
I don't know, reflections on the expedition. We can talk about the details of it, you know, later if you want. But I think I'm just starting to have those feelings like Captain Brett and I have been on the water over 20 years or 20 years or so. I mean, when we started, we were we were kids, man, you know, <laughs> like late 20s. We did offshore adventures together, which was was wonderful. And and then we started this expedition stuff. And, you know, this was our 39th expedition. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah, it's crazy. And I thought back to, you know, some of the things like um, the first time yeah, we were kids and we were figuring it out and we were trying to help the scientists and do this new stuff and then also operate a, a ship and move it around the world and stay safe, you know, with a couple of other little boats. And there's been so much learning over the years, like 2012 Africa was a big test. That's when I felt like we could, you know, make it through anything. When we were up there this year and those three big storms rolled through that were all at one point, you know, named hurricanes. Some hit us as tropical storms. One is a hurricane, I believe. It was breaking up right to that at us and just grinded through it. It was, you know, the weather was brutal. And we had, you know, one night of some really bad weather, but we were smart and we moved the ship and we saw it coming in advance and we had a plan. And you know, like reflecting back on it. And then we got a weather window and we got them, right? Yeah, you did. It's like, wow, we really made something that was incredibly difficult look so easy because we were operating like the old bull. We've had 39 expeditions. We learned so much. Like that could have been a catastrophe trip for someone who wasn't reading Anyway, we're not young anymore. <laughs> Well, there's wisdom in those years, right? Yeah, but I still feel so young. You know, I, I still feel like 30. I got to believe that being out there on the cutting edge, being out there on an expedition, it sounds like you've been in those waters before, at least in that region. But, you know, it's all new every day. I was like, wow, I wonder if we could have pulled that off, you know, 25 expeditions ago. Right, right. Kudos to you. It's this great combination of confidence, wisdom, eyes wide open, beginner's mind, learning, new things happening, 39 expeditions and and a couple of decades of experience and meshing all that, melding all that together. Yeah, that's that's the kind of stuff when you come back, you think about because when you're in it, you're not reflecting on it. Right. Well, you got to reflect a little bit when you were when you were coming out on Instagram and you were coming out through some social platforms, which I was really, again, this is probably the second time, there were some spectacular moments. I know it was late in the expedition, but as you said, you you were on it, right? Like you were in the, in the zone and the team had weathered the storms literally and the window opened up and game on. Yeah. I mean, that's what happened. It was, the trip was crazy because we started and the first day we started, we had good weather. And then we knew the wind was going to come up a little bit. We start working off kind of one of the coolest spots you've ever been to, the Scattery Island and Hay Island on Cape Breton in Nova Scotia. Gorgeous morning set up. Two hours later, we get one. <laughs> We're like, oh, yeah, man, it's on. You know, like, <laughs> we, how many tags do we have? You know, and we always carry 20. So then, you know, you're feeling that way. But then you're seeing these storms brewing up below. Like it was Paulette rolling up through Bermuda. And then there's like five or seven of them stacked up behind it. But you're kind of like, I don't know, you know, a lot of times these things turn off to the south and don't get up here. It's a little cold, you know. 
So we'll see what happens. And then, and then the wind came up the next day. The second day, we had a shark pick up a bait and drop it. So we didn't get it, but we had to move into like spot B because we couldn't fish spot A because of the weather. We got pushed around again. We had to take a day off on the third day, and we had another shark pick up a bait and drop it. So we're like, first three, you know, four days, you know, we got one. We saw one every day since then. And that's good for this type of work. A little bit like steelhead fishing. If you come into contact with one steelhead a day, you're, you're doing pretty well. Exactly. Exactly <laughs> the same. You're like, you're going back to that spot. <laughs> and then the weather came up, man. And I think for about 18 days or something, we ran from three different storms, ended up pushing us around up to the north of Nova Scotia to Prince Edward Island, which I had never seen before spectacular place. But so all of a sudden we're thinking, okay, the only safe place with these storms is to get further north and more west. We moved the ship a few hundred miles because we saw it coming a few days away and navigated through these these couple of storms, ended up in this beautiful place. Well, Prince Edward Island was probably somewhere I was going to be planning an expedition in that area probably next year and would have committed a lot of time and resources to it. And so we were forced there. I'm like, hey man, the weather's crappy. It's better over there we got to look at this stuff one day anyway. I mean, we can't fish. Let's just learn as much as we can of as many different spots and go see them. Even if it's kind of cruddy and it's not optimal, it's safest area of this part of the world to be in for us. And so we started going, looking at these spots that we probably would have planned expeditions to in the future. And, you know, there's a lot going on when you look at O-Search. It's not about just like where the sharks are. You know, you could go and catch one where that shark is. You have to be able to go to a place where you can get the ship in there because it's deep enough. You got to have flat enough water that you can use the lift and move people from boat to boat and not too much current or you can't get the shark back up into the lift. So we went and looked at all these kind of places and we're like, well, there's sharks here, but this, this is not a good place for our operation. And so we started trying to turn, you know, lemons into lemonade by saying, we're going to look at these spots. So we don't dedicate a bunch of future resources and time to it. And we start to narrow in on like where they're really at. So at the end of this thing, we're getting them. Like we know the three spots in the whole country. So that was kind of interesting, right? It was like, okay, you know, we can't fish. We got to move that way. Let's go check these spots. Cause Brett's, I'm always Brett, but like, give me, I need more spots that you want to see. If Brett can go there and Brett can look at them, and we can just get even a little window of being able to fish the area. He can be like, we don't need to come back here or we need to come back here. And that's hugely important when you're talking about moving a ship and 20 people. The amount of money you could plan in the wrong area, you know, is really an efficient way if you're trying to learn fast so our kids can eat food. We were able to like, you know, begin to look at spots that we know now we don't want to go back to because maybe the bottom's not right. Maybe there's too much current. Maybe it's only protected from one direction of the weather and we can't hide enough places as the weather shifts around constantly. So that was super efficient. So we kind of battled through the weather and did that for about 20 days or 18 days. And then Teddy came through and behind Teddy, it just was like glorious. So we dropped down out of Prince Edward Island through this cool thing called the Canso Canal. It goes kind of right through the middle of Nova Scotia, separating it from Cape Breton. And then it drops you out on the South Shore. So you don't have to go all the way back around to, out to the east around Breton, which was the way we came in. And so it was much quicker. Man-made? Yeah. It's got one little lock in it. It's cool. So we drop out of the Canso Canal after this peninsula called Canso. And it's like a spectacular Nova Scotia. You know, there's 
all these islands and the round rocks with deep canals through them. Like you could get the contender through them easy. You could get the safe boat through them easy. And then there was shallows and they were just full of life. And you're like, wow. And then it dropped right off to like 300 feet and there were bluefin tuna jumping out in the water, handful of seals around. You're like, oh boy, we got to spend a couple of days here. You know, but the day before, Teddy was throwing like 40 foot breakers over the island for a couple of days. We actually stuck with it. We stayed there two and a half days because it just looked so good. We just couldn't leave it. I think it needed time after Teddy to kind of recover. So then after two and a half days, you know, we could have like done a half day, but like, man, it looked good. We got to go back there. And then we slid down to, you know, what had been producing the last two years, West Iron Brown, the weather cooperated, you know, and we got seven in five days or something. Okay, look, we like to fish out there in Cape Breton where we got saw those sharks the first day. We like West Ironbound, but we lose three quarters of a day of fishing if we drive all the way from one spot to the other, and Canso is right in the middle. So now we can work in Cape Breton, eat dinner, go to bed, wake up fishing in Canso. Fish in Canso a handful of days. If it's good, stay. If it's not, go to bed at night, wake up the next morning, fish in Lunenburg. So we don't lose time, right? Efficiency. Like you got to drill it down to every detail, man, at every level, because it's hard to do what we're doing. It's why it's never been done. So if you can find those little incremental gains over time, it gets hugely powerful on how effective you can be. So anyway, I'm off topic. I'm sorry. But anyway, we got pushed around by the weather and then we, we saw a cool spot we got to go back to because it's good for planning and it's a good looking spot. But boy, oh boy, did West Ironbound deliver. I'd say. Kind of feels like pulling a rabbit out of a hat after 18, 20 days of battling, right? You get one on day one and then you get your ass handed to you for a whole bunch of weeks. Everybody stays in the game. You learn a bunch and then it lights up and, you know, it's on. That's what happened, man. It was so cool to watch. That's what happened. You know, pulled into Ironbound. And you never know, right? Like, but two years in a row and you're really looking for this predictable access and you're kind of like, certainly it can't be like it was like last year. There's just no way. Right. It's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> we set up and we had one in, a, I think, if, that day. Wow. That's incredible. That is incredible that you can come back to this spot that Brett found on a chart. Like, Brett, we're going to Nova Scotia. We got to figure out where to get him. He's like, well, this would be my number one spot. <laughs> like, you know, but the, when we got there, the first trip, we couldn't go there right at the beginning because the weather it was exposed from that direction. And so as soon as we had a window, we went down there and that's the same spot we went to three years later and they are fighting there. Right in the honey hole. It's unbelievable. I don't, it's hard to even understand what's there. Why are they there? It's fascinating. I mean, you know, because there's so much other structure that looks so similar and then there's not any sort of real observational difference when you look up at the beach, like, oh, yeah, well, there's 500 seals over there and there's only five over there. No, it's not like that. I mean, when you're out there working, if you drive around that island, I say if you see a dozen seals, you're, it's kind of normal. And so there's something about that spot that's just unbelievable. I mean, we've driven all over the world. It's one thing if you're going to a cage diving site in Guadalupe or South Africa, the sharks are all trained up, right? They get fed every day. And then it's another thing to go to just the middle of the wild and find it. Well, and kudos to you and Captain Brett and, you know, the team looking at charts. And then it sounds like you've been there now. This expedition was the third time you've been there. Is that right? Yeah, the third time. 
you know, and the first time was when we went that year. And I think we touched six sharks there. One of them was too small to put a tag on because of the current permit at the time, which has since been adjusted because it was a big shark. And then uh, last year, we got seven there in about the same period of time. And this year we got seven in the same period of time. And, you know, we were only holding it out for like the last week because we're still trying to learn so much about the rest of the area that we don't know if there's another spot where there's 10 times the volume. But it's starting to hold up like almost nothing I've ever seen. I mean, it's a special place. Anyway, and then uh, we started seeing sharks. And that was a relief for, you know, Captain Brett. And everybody's kind of split up working when we're out there, right? So you got Captain Brett, Max, and DJ going out every morning at dawn. First of all, you got the chef getting up at like 4.45 or 4.30 so that he can get up and have something for the guys to put in their stomachs, coffee, a little something to eat. And then they leave like right when there's the first glimmer of light and they go out there, they set up all the, all the rigs, all these special customized breakaway rigs we've built for these animals or design. That's all Brett. He, he's a genius. I'm telling you. And then, uh, you know, the rest of us are sleeping in our racks, you know, kind of, chilling out, <laughs> you know, for another couple hours, you know, at least until the sun is bright enough to maybe like, I get up at 5.45 and toss and turn, but they don't really need me out there until if they get one or breakfast is ready, you know, because those guys are just grinding, man. It's like those people that are cut from a different thing that you see in a lot of outdoorsmen and other people in work or whatever. Even when it was crappy, they were going out there like, man, we're going to get one. Maybe we can get one because they got these scientists sitting there. Just amazing their endurance. What other people don't think about is the, mental and emotional kind of disposition of all these scientists that have come and for three weeks, we're dragging them around the water and some are coming in for, you know, half the trip. And then another half the trip, we saw one and the other people are there for the other half and they saw seven. So some of the, I got to give it up to the people who were there who endured a long period of time and everybody held their cool. I mean, that's one of the things I'm, you know, watching it for is anybody here who's not a full-time person maybe going to lose it because they haven't spent 14 days on a boat or 28 days on a boat. And then we had none of that. None of that. I mean, everybody, I think in a lot of our scientists now are super mature as well because they've been returning for years. And so they've done more expeditions on O-Search maybe than in the rest of their whole life because we're doing three a year. Most of the time they're trying to raise money to do one every few years. And, but I just got to commend everyone for being so solid. And then, you know, boom, we got one and everybody was just like, it was like a giant sigh of relief exhaled out of the entire O-Search vessel. <laughs> like, oh, they're here. You know, you know, they're still here. Unbelievable. I can't believe they're here. You know what I mean? Like three years. And then they just kept coming, man. Got a nice little weather window of a day or two and then had to sit out a day and then had like three or four days in it. And it all worked out. We were seeing sharks every day. Even if we didn't catch one that day and it, nothing went out about it, we were seeing a shark a shot a day. But sometimes they just kind of pick it up and nibble at it, and carry it around and drop it and swim off. Just like a fish will. No, most people don't under, they think these white sharks, like if there's something in the water, they're just going to swim up and eat it. Like, you know, because of the movies and things. I can tell you these things, man, it's just as hard. If you're not getting the, the presentation right, like the drift or the swing, it's exactly the same, man. These things are clever and they will look at it and they'll be like, that's not right. No, not buying that. And I, I think that's a big misunderstanding people have. These things, they will look right at it and be like, like they're almost like they're thinking about it. 
you know, and, and it refused it just like a trout refusing to fly. They're discerning. Can we talk about that a little bit? Cause I think there's like, I had one of my, our listeners communicate with me the other day and she said, Hey, is there a way to communicate with people who are out there that have been on the show? You were one of the people she mentioned, Garrett Cop, who's Birch Boys uh, mushroom man, and he's done two episodes with me. He was the other. So really, that's the ATBS, the podcast Facebook group. But she was asking, and I've had a couple of people be like, wow, you know, like I've got kids who surf. I think her question was, what does Chris recommend that my kids wear when they go surfing, you know, or something like that, right? Like there's this feeling, impression, whatever it is that these animals are indiscriminately chomping on everything they see. Well, if that was happening, there'd be thousands of people a day gobbled up around the world. Right. You know, all you got to do is think about that for a second. I mean, you don't even need fine level of detail, man. If white sharks or any other shark wanted anything to do with people, no one would swim. <laughs> It'd be like Northern Australia with the crocs. You can also pose that question as you did, like, where my kid goes surfing, what should he wear? You know, and I think the biggest thing is for people who are going to the ocean, people just like, they'll be sitting at home and say, oh, we're going down to go surfing at Newport Beach, you know, wherever. And be like, okay, well, how can you really decide when you're sitting in your house, if you are going to go down and go surfing at Newport Beach, if you haven't gone and looked at it? Because if the seals are going off there, and the game fish are going off there, and the birds are diving on it, and the bait's there, and you're in a place where white sharks are eating seals. You don't want to go surfing there. Why in the world would you do that? You would be like, oh, whoa, the food chain's going off right here where I was planning on surfing, uh, but there's a good break, you know, five miles down the beach. Let's go take a look at that and see if, like, it's a little less lifey. People like decide where they're going in the ocean before they even go down and look at it. So we got to transition ourselves to get in this mind frame like the ocean is a wild place and I can't just decide I'm going to go in wherever, whenever, and do whatever I want, whenever I want. I mean, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't walk into like the Serengeti of Africa with that disposition. You wouldn't wander into the mountains that way either, right? In the wintertime. So we got to all like adjust this fundamental thing that we have that is this idea of we can go in wherever we want, whenever we want and do whatever we want and nothing should happen to me. And if it does, it's something else's fault. I mean, like, really? You know, like, whoa, let's just start with that. If you do that, it doesn't matter what you wear. <laughs> right. It's not just the surf report, right? Like, I think a lot of people, I've got friends on the West Coast, you know, they live up the canyon from Malibu, Surf Rider Beach right down there. You know, they watch the swell report, right? And to your point, that's not the only piece of information. And it reminds me very much of a guy named Jan Peterson. He really took me under his wing when I first moved west, taught me a tremendous amount about trout fishing, fly fishing for trout. And he said, first of all, there are like three flies that he would take with him. He's like, if you could only take three, take these. And secondly, when you show up at the river's edge, sit down and watch yeah, and learn and pay attention and see what's happening. And so it, it really reminds me what you just said about that, like, look, you got to take in the information yeah. that's out there. We're responsible. We need to be responsible for doing that. 
Absolutely. And then you know what I would also say? I would also say, hey, it doesn't really matter that much what you wear. There's no reason to wear black. If you choose, because the surf is so good, it's worth it to you to go out there in it. No, I got no problem with that because the odds of anything happening are microscopic anyway. You're more dangerous when you drive home from the parking lot. You know, don't wear black and swim around with the seals because they're black because you look like uh, the weakest seal. So you, and you, if you know there's white sharks that are eating seals in this area, that you don't want to look like the weak one. So try to avoid looking like that. And you know what? It's probably not going to matter anyway, bro. You know, I get it. I get why you go because you could go your whole life and nothing's going to happen. But if a million people go their whole lives, something's going to happen. Millions and millions across the whole world everywhere. Something's going to happen to a handful of them over a long period of time. And I think most humans, the way they just calculate risk, as many of us do, whether we're rock climbing or um, surfing or skiing or, you know, look at all the crazy stuff people do on motorcycles and all these things that is, is built into all of us. I don't really think that they're operating on any higher level of risk. It's more kind of uh, people get freaked out about it. What they really should do, look at the statistics of how many people are dying, you know, riding a motorcycle or something. It's just so dramatic, the event, you know, that the rationale has gotten so blown out of proportion of the reality that we got places like Massachusetts now that look like Amityville. I mean, they got these buoys in the water that aren't even supposed to be used for public safety. They're supposed to just be used for science because they don't work fast enough. And every time a shark swims by it with a tag, they send out this global shark alert and they shut down that section of the beach for an hour. And then the shark swims up the beach and he's setting them off up and down the beach. And everybody's like, oh my God, what's with all these shark alerts? I'm freaked out. And meanwhile, that's been going on their whole life. They've had a couple of tragic incidences over a very long period of time. But no one's talking about how many people are drowning on that beach each year. They should have riptide alerts. You'd be stunned if you look up the number of how many people drown a year off Cape Cod. And then you think about a couple people with sharks over the last several decades. So we got to like just slow down and think about it. Like you can't go wherever you want, whenever you want. But even if you do, <laughs> the odds of something negative happening are incredibly low. So I understand why you want to take that risk. Go do it and cheer yourself. But in the end, that's accountable to that individual we don't have a community level to try to manage that low level of risk for every citizen in everything we do, or we couldn't do anything. Right. We'd be paralyzed. Right. You wouldn't be able to leave your house and they probably wouldn't provide you power and water because that's too risky because there's a lot more. <laughs> you understand what I mean? Like we have to somehow get the thought process, everyone to slow down and be like, oh, that's ridiculous. That doesn't even pass the common sense test. But that is really difficult to overcome. I mean, when you've done that, if it's possible, you have finally turned around what Jaws did. Because my kids growing up right now, they're not that flipped out about it. It's all the older people, man. It's all of us and the news and everything else. My kids are like, what? Yeah, sharks are in the ocean. Because Jaws didn't affect them the way it affected this big group of us that were young enough and it was still new. You know, Now they look at it and they're like, that doesn't even look real, daddy. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. Why are we watching this? The, you know, and so it's really a pretty narrow band of maybe it's 50 years. Now it looks ridiculous to kids. So they don't, they don't have the same thing, but we end up 
planting it in them with all these, you know, shark stories and how that is just continued on. And then over time, we kind of suck them into it. I want to share this because it's exactly the same thing. I was a ski jumper as a kid. I started ski jumping in the 70s and ski jumped all the way through like the early 90s. And then my job, when I came to Park City, I came here to start ski jumping programs at what is now called the Utah Olympic Park. And there hadn't been ski jumping in Utah in like 30 years or something like that. So there were no parents. There was nobody who had ski jumped. And this was back in like the early 90s. Okay. So now you got parents who are in their 20s and 30s and whatever. And what they knew about ski jumping, and this is very much the Jaws type thing, they knew from the wide world of sports, the agony of defeat. A famous shot. Oh, totally. Yeah. So for decades, decades, same exactly what you're saying, right? Like that was just indelibly etched in people's mind as, holy shit, ski jumping? No. <laughs> yeah, that's too dangerous, right? Like, and the amount of times that somebody actually fell before they got off the takeoff and fell the way that guy fell is just, you know, infinitesimal. So unlikely you can't manage against it. No. And he broke his ankle or something. You know, like it just looked horrific, right? But he wasn't, he really wasn't that hurt. But anyway, it's very similar, right? So you've just got this, oh, people, that's what's in their mind. And it doesn't have anything to do with reality. Nothing. I didn't know you founded that program, dude. That's badass. It was it was awesome. It was a great way to, uh, you know, I was 28 years old when I showed up in Park City and sight unseen, drove across the country in my van with my Rottweiler bear and my windsurfer and my mountain bike and set up shop in Park City and, and started sending kids off ski jumps. That's cool. Yeah, it was awesome. It was like the wild, wild west. There was no rule book. There was no, the expectations were limited. It was prior to the Olympics being awarded to Salt Lake City. So, you know, it was like 92 to 96. And oh my gosh, were those good fun years. You know, one of the things we did, Chris, that I think is, I don't know that it hadn't ever been done, but I started a beer league ski jumping. Tuesday night town jump series and local sports shops and bars put together teams. It was like a bowling league, except we were ski jumping on the 20 and 30 meter ski jumps. It was absolutely hysterical. It was fantastic. The things you could never do today. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't you couldn't get away with that shit now. But we were like, oh, yeah, Tuesday night town jump series. You know, like, don't drink too much before you come, please. It goes back to the same accountability issue. Like back then, we're like, well, yeah, man, you went out on the beer league ski jump. You broke your leg, so go handle your shit. You know, now they want to blame the park or blame what, you know, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. Back then, it was no problem. And it, it, this is a reoccurring theme for sure in these conversations that I'm having is, you know, taking responsibility for ourselves and how we proceed. And that could be, you know, our health and wellness. That could be, you know, medically speaking. I live in that world where, you know, I see the guys in the white coats pretty regularly, right? And they are not all knowing. We can't just turn ourselves over to others and say, hey, man, you know, like you need to solve my problem or answer my question, right? Like we need to do that. And, you know, look at the look at the time in history in which we're living right now. We're recording this in the middle of October 2020. It'll be out unlike the last one, Chris, where you and I sat in the wintertime and it came out in June. This one will be out in 10 days. And here we are at this really, really important time in history. And I don't think it's ever been more important to be accountable. 
do your own research. Oh, man, it actually makes life much easier. You're not constantly going backward. I wanted to, you know, I might want to provide a picture to you because I was sitting here waiting on this podcast. And I got this picture from the office, this picture of Namugi, the 17-foot, 2-inch female we caught. Yeah, she, her name means grandmother from the local Mi'kmaq tribe, you know, the indigenous people of Nova Scotia. If I think maybe if people can see this, while I'm looking at this picture, I'll share it with you. We, we're not after like the big shark. That's not our thing, right? These scientists need all sizes, all sexes, all shapes, and they need a lot of like way more sharks than they've ever had access to in history. I mean, we developed this like first they thought they needed 60. You know, now that was before we even knew about Nova Scotia. Now they know they want something over 100 to really describe this situation. So you're looking for these different profiles. So the most interesting thing about the size of Namugi is not that she's big, it's that our science team lacks samples from this demographic of shark, this profile, you know, and that you got to have a certain amount of each one to so you got strong defensible science when you publish. And so, you know, that's the most significant thing to me. And, and it, like I get, look, the big shark story goes back into what we were talking about earlier. Like, so I'm not in that mind frame of being afraid of the big shark or whatever. I'm looking at this picture and you'll see in some of the things I did, I talk about how when you look at the skin of a white shark across the length of their body, when you get an animal that's this big and most importantly, this old, you can actually start to see like the story of her life in the markings because she's been around a lot, man. And she has been through a lot. She is thriving. What did you guys estimate for age? Uh, you know, we called it at 50, but I mean, uh, what we really called was, and I talked to the science team after it, was at least 50. Wow. And so that in, in itself makes you look feel really, really small, you know? And, and I think some people maybe, when you first look at a shark, and I, I kind of want to go through this because I've seen a lot of sharks, right? And so maybe the stuff I'm seeing is not the same thing that most people see when they glance at an image of a shark like Namugi, because it's just such a big shark you kind of tend to see the whole big shark instead of like all these little things that are going on on every inch of her body, which tell a story of her life. Like when you look at this picture, you can see that years ago she was bitten just behind her eye and you can see both sides of the scars or she was bitten by a seal there or something. And that happened some time ago, you know, not, not really that recently. And then right behind it before her gills, on her cheek, you can see all these like radical claw marks on her face. Those claw marks are from when she's grabbing a hold of these seals and they're fighting for their lives, man. And they got claws and they have been clawing her like crazy while she's been trying to feed and they've been trying to survive. You're like, wow, that when you look at the claw marks on this shark, she was not, not in the last couple of days, but certainly in the last several months in the midst of a battle with probably a pretty big seal. I mean, a battle. You'll see these scratches on the side. <laughs> you know? And then on the top of her head, you see like a, a red mark where it looks like she was maybe a shark trying to grab a hold of her to mate with her or to push her off something. When you slide down her gill plates on the bottom of her gill plates, you can see they're kind of the part that are just on the water's edge where it drops underwater. Like a big male white shark grabbed her there and mated with her years ago. I mean, years ago, that could have been 
15 years ago, like massive old scars that are healed over. And you slide back to the middle of her body, you know, down near the waterline of the lower pectoral fin. A big shark grabbed her right in the middle of her body, like recently. When I was looking at her, you could see like the individual tooth holes, but the shark was too small. But it grabbed her. There's just her whole, this colony of parasites on her tail and in all the different color changes and splash from old healing. It's really fascinating when you slow down and you take a look at an animal like this and you see this in her. There's so much history that when you're standing there, you're kind of like, whoa, I feel so small. I could tell when you were broadcasting from the deck of O-Search, going through some of this, not to the same detail, that, you know, how, just how moved and my, I was actually talking to my sister, Catherine, uh, within the past day or two. And she said, oh, you're going to talk to Chris. Fantastic. And she said, man, he was moved. And you start to understand why, right? We who don't get that opportunity to slow down and be in the presence of a being that, as you just described, you know, a, a lifetime of struggle and mating and feeding and surviving amazing and think about man like she made it through all the things we did to them in the 70s 80s and 90s she was around when jaws came out she went through the unrelenting pressure for the couple decades after that of people trying to catch and kill them all she made it through that she made it through until the 90s when we realized we had so few sharks that if we didn't fix it, our kids weren't going to eat food. And now is delivering her genetics. She was the smartest of the smart, man. She made it through us. And now to be able to, to learn from her biology and learn from her to help the others is just an unbelievable gift because we need a lot more of her. <laughs> she is the strongest of the strongest. She is the smartest of the smartest. She made it through us. I mean, that's, that's crazy because most of the sharks we see weren't alive and didn't have to make it through that struggle. You know, they're only 20 years old. They're only 15 years old. Because you know what? There aren't that many that made it through. I'm certain we will find in the future that there's bound to be some of the sharks that we have captured and tagged that have come from a shark like this because she's been having babies for at least 30 years. And her first babies are at least 30 years old now making their own babies, right? She's got grand sharks like legit. And it's just, you feel all that, you know, when you've been handling them. I mean, even if you probably didn't have the time to think through things like that, because you haven't been in it like we have, uh, which is totally understandable. Even if you aren't there, you still would stand next to this shark and you would feel that even though you might not be able to manifest perhaps why that was happening to you. It's that powerful. You know, everybody felt it, right? But I mean, there were people who haven't been around that long that were like, when they came off of it and she swam away, 
they just stood there and kind of just like wept. We are feeling that. We're not weeping it because we've been through it so much and probably did the first time, you know, 13 years ago. It really is that powerful. I mean, you feel it, bro. But the fact that this animal survived us and now we're learning from her so she can help the rest. This is, we need lots of this in the ocean. We need those genetics. We need those genes. She needs to succeed so our kids can eat fish. And she's given us a glance at what like an animal that can endure that looks like. And that's, that's very unique. I'm pondering the, you know, when you say you feel that, right? And I think when you're in the presence of, you know, an animal like that, and we all have felt what it feels like to be in someone's presence who's just exuding positive energy, right? There's an attraction, there's a gravitational pull, right? We've also felt what it feels like to be around somebody that is exuding negative energy. It's almost like a, you know, a magnetic pushing away, right? So we know what that is. Not to say that any of those experiences are, you know, equal to being on the deck with a fantastic creature like that. But to me, it goes back to, look, continue to extend our antennae so that we are tuning in with more, you know, like discernment and more fine tuning, right? Tuning into each other. We need to do that in the world in which we live today. Like, let's tune into each other. Let's pay attention. Let's feel what it feels like to connect and to, and to feel energy. Yeah. And that, and that also that like, you know, we're always growing and changing, you know, and learning and evolving. It's not like who I am now is not who I'm going to be tomorrow. And I'm not who I was yesterday. And I feel like people think things are so static. They've lost conversation. So then now no one's evolved. Anyway, that's another subject. But I like, I didn't have the maturity to see that in Mary Lee when we handled her in 2012, you know? She made it through us too, right? Hopefully we're always changing and evolving. That's what keeps it interesting. Sure does. And I just see it differently now than I saw it then. And it's so, it's like, (laughs) it's like, you know, when you go fly fishing and you think you've had a good day and the more you catch them, you realize how little you know. Because you don't, you're not even at a place of enlightenment to the next level. And there'll be another one after that, another one after that. So much to learn. Yeah. And that's cool. Right. So that made this experience really different for me. I think than a lot of the bigger sharks, because when it's funny, we've handled a number of sharks this size, but most of it was when we worked in the Pacific and in Africa. And that was all kind of when we caught Mary Lee in 2012. And we just hadn't seen an animal of this maturity really since that time, even though there's probably been, I don't know, somewhere around eight or 10 that were similar, you know, similar, but was in the, figuring it out mode and survival mode. And I didn't have the luxury of stepping back and really thinking about it. (laughs) Well, and then how about geographically speaking, right? Like where you were for this one, where you connected with her, right? That part of the world where, you know, it's, I haven't spent much time up there a little bit, but spectacular, right? It's not the coast of Massachusetts. I got to believe there's an energy when you get into those various places, right? Yeah, so it's it was cool. I mean, that was transformational. And then imagine having that disposition and then going into the, you know, then it pops in the press. So I'm sitting there, I'm talking to them on deck afterward. They're like, tell us about, you know, Namugia. I told a lot of what we just talked about now. And I said thing like building on what I said is like, man, you're looking at like a true matriarch of the ocean, you know, like 
a queen of the ocean. And it's, you know, you kind of feel that like, you know, like grandma, you know, like the old wise one. Right. You know, the next thing I know that, you know, like the press picks it up and it's like, Oh, search has caught the queen of the ocean. And then they start talking about how big it is. I'm like, no, man, you don't get it. You should see what, like the story of her life, you know? <laughs> and then the big shark thing goes crazy across the universe, you know? And it's like, okay, cool. Well, let's just use that as an entry point. Let's talk about, you know, you never saw O-Search talking about like, we put the metrics out that, you know, this is her size. And but you don't hear anybody talking about like, woohoo, we caught the big one. That's ridiculous when you look at an animal like this. But that's the way the press goes. And that's the way people just like you, they interview you and they pick a quote out and that becomes the headline. And, and suddenly it was the queen of the ocean. Right. And it's got to fit into it. You know, it's got to be a soundbite. It's got to be quick. It's got to be consumable. Got to capture people's attention. And unlike a format like this, we can talk about like, I mean, just listening to you go from kind of stem to stern on, you know, tip to tail. And you want to talk about how big she is? Like, really? <laughs> Come on. You're right. Come right. on, man. Right. Look at this beautiful. She survived us, man. And so, yeah, but that's the way it works. It's okay. Like it went everywhere. If that brings people into a conversation so you can help them begin their thinking about this subject and then slowly over time, maybe they tune in a little more and you can help evolve that conversation. You know, you can't expect everywhere to be in the same conversation at the same time. I totally get that, right? Because I'm deep in this journey. Most people give it, you know, seconds. And I totally get that. So it can be leveraged that it's a great entry because it's kind of a traditional entry. The press knows it works. That's why they drive it because then they get their clicks and then that works out for them. And what you see coming out of O-Search, you won't really see us talking about that in the article. Like they'll mention it and they'll benchmark it against whatever. And we'll be talking more about science and what can be learned, and, you know, how amazing she was in the story of her life and just let other people talk about that stuff. But it feels weird. It's just the way the world works. And if it's bringing new people into the conversation, then we can slowly nurture that conversation with them to where one day they can look at Namugi and the first thing they see is the story of her life. And it doesn't really matter how big she is. That's a cool thing, right? And some people are deep and way down that journey. And some people are just entering it. We need to nurture them and help them, if they're interested, get to the point where they the first thing they see is the story of her life. <laughs> Beautiful. I don't know what else to say. That's, that's if there's a message, you know, and we're not here just to provide a message or get a soundbite. I love the fact that we get into these conversations and, uh, you know, for anybody who's out there listening, go to osearch.org and check out the shark tracker and, and, but Check out the information, check out the images, get in to whatever degree you can, you know, that time allows and that your interest allows, you know, hopefully we can open some eyes. You guys are doing wonderful work. Keep up the great work. I'm sure you've got multiple expeditions on the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. We're planning 2021 right now. Right. And, and we're excited about 2021 because we have some science stuff that's, you know, we get coming out of the labs that hasn't popped yet in peer-reviewed publications that is informing us on, you know, where we think they might be mating and where, because we got the science in the ship and Brett and his mind and the science mind colliding. Because as you collect more data, you can shoot toward more targeted 
gaps in the data set, like proving where they're mating rather than thinking you know. And so there's some exciting stuff coming next year that's different. We're going to be in at least one different spot that we've been in before based that's being driven by the science and what we're seeing coming out of the hormone work and the uh, reproductive work with the sperm and the males that's pushing us in a direction to try to find where they're mating. And if we can get there and sample some sharks and those samples are consistent, we'll be helping them get toward good defensible science in that arena. And that's a big deal in the science space and for conservation. And so that's exciting. And then we're going to be, hopefully, you know, we got to fulfill the balance of our permit with our reporting in Canada so that we start the process for the 2021 permit. And we're just going through the process now. This is the third time we've gone through the process. They're amazing people to work with up there, like true professional, proper people looking after that resource up there in regards to the shark space. And then, you know, we're taking a good look. We're talking to the people in Maine not only the people from the, the government there, but also some groups. So we're hoping to spend some time in Maine next year and kind of, because Maine and Massachusetts, you can work in Massachusetts and overnight and the next morning you're working in Maine, right? So it's kind of one spot for us as far as moving the ship around. So one expedition down in that region is what we're looking at for next year. So yeah, that, that is, that's exciting. One of the things that struck me on our first episode, like, episode number four, I think, and now this is going to be like episode number 26, was, you know, why? Like, why are the why are the white sharks important? And for someone who may pick up ATBS the podcast and grab this episode before they hear the first episode, the analogy between the wolves and Yellowstone and the white sharks in the ocean, give the listeners like why this matters. Yeah, so this is not really a shark program. This is an abundance program. We're, we're really, our initial objective was to try to ensure that all of our future generations have the fish stocks off the coast of the United States to make sure that they can eat food and globally. And so why the white shark? When you look at a picture of Namugi, like you have up here, you can see those seal scratches on her face. When Namugi's swimming around these islands right here, none of those seals are going in the water to wipe out the cod stocks, the lobster stocks salmon stocks out west. You know, we know when these animals are present, much like the wolf in Yellowstone keep making the deer and elk bed down in the forest, these animals sit up on the beach and they eat one fourth as much. Every seal eats one fourth as much if just a white shark is present here swimming around. And if those white sharks aren't there, every single one of those seals goes out and eats four times as much and our fish stocks collapse and our kids don't eat fish. So what most people don't understand is that white sharks, they're out there guarding our fish stocks. They're literally guarding our fish stocks so that we have commercial and recreational fisheries and our kids can swim in an ocean full of fish and eat seafood. And so the problem was the sharks had been hammered so hard over the years by shark fin soup. We're down to 9% of our large sharks as the marine mammals were recovering from the Marine Mammal Protection Act from the 70s. And we're down primarily for shark fin soup, you know, and most of it's heading to Asia. I was helping scientists study some other things, and they started saying, man, if we don't get this big shark thing right, it's not going to matter what we're doing on these black marlin or sailfish or whatever the research we were doing there, which was much more primitive. But we, were, we started out doing, trying to help scientists way before O-Search was started. It was just we were fishing for game fish and things. That's what we were doing. And they started to talk about this shark problem and like, whoa, we better manage those sharks back so that we make sure our kids can come out here and go sail fishing 
and bill fishing and go snorkeling and see fish and eat food. And I'm like, well, why isn't someone, you know, why aren't we looking after where they mate or, you know, give birth or where's the nursery? Let's just help the baby ones along the way. They're like, man, they're so big. We've never been able to study and we don't know. I'm like, but you just said no fish sandwiches. Then we're out of sharks and we got to get them back and we don't have the data. And they were like, yeah. And so I pivoted, man. And I just pivoted everything I had toward building an operation that could solve this global large shark problem for everybody. And, you know, I got kids too. I mean, there was my son. I wanted my kids to be able to see that. And and that's how O-Search happened. So now it's the leading white shark program in the world where we're studying, this is like orders of magnitude greater than anyone's ever done because we've approached it in an entrepreneurial way. I didn't know what academia was. I didn't know what research was. I knew these guys needed to stand next to this animal and we needed to be able to let it go alive so they could get the data to make sure our kids eat fish sandwiches. So how am I going to build an enterprise to do that? And that's where O-Search began. And now what we're doing is orders of magnitude because we didn't know what the system was supposed to look like. We just built an efficient system where we have big collaborative teams of scientists instead of individual scientists working on their own. And, you know, it makes a lot more sense to deliver big capacity to every scientist than each scientist competing, trying to develop their own capacity is like a broken system, right? So now, because of that philosophy of just, you know, bringing everyone together for the fish sandwich, both the fishermen, the scientists, and getting scientists to collaborate, I mean, what we're doing is orders of magnitude greater than anyone is doing in the world or has done before. Because we're studying not only the biology of the shark, we're studying the ecology of the shark. So both, and most operations that are working individually, they're trying to cover like one sliver of ecology which just doesn't really get you there when you need to look after this animal over its entire range and make sure they're there to guard our fish stocks in the future. And so it's amazing what's happening with the scientists because, you know, we're, we're getting like full biological workup for the physiology and everything of this animal, plus deep in levels of ecology on multiple levels all from the same one individually shark. Like when you look at the uh, Namugi right here in this picture, there has been no white shark in the world that has been, has been and is being studied as comprehensively as that animal by orders of magnitude greater than anything else before. And that's how you overcome data deficit and time problems, which is the challenge in managing the ocean. So I'm sorry, I get all jacked up about just building an enterprise to like, you know, do it the new way. We're Googleizing the approach to ocean research instead of like old academia old institutional orientation, individual orientations. We don't have enough time for that anymore. I wouldn't have done that even if I knew that's how that universe worked. It doesn't make any sense. It's not great-grandchildren first. We now are the leading white shark research program in the world. We've got 55 papers peer-reviewed and published. We have a whole bunch popping later this month. We've got another 40 in the barrel getting ready to pop out. And we are cranking out peer-reviewed published papers about things that people couldn't even conceive of previously because they never had safe access to the animal. Like we're doing projects you wouldn't have even tried to think up because they were just impossible before O-Search. Primitive methods like going around in a boat and throwing a harpoon in a shark, like a whaler, are not going to get you there. I knew this the first time. When you and I recorded early in the wintertime, kind of pre-COVID, 
it was the first time for me as host of ATBS, the podcast where I went, man, that is what I'm striving for. That energy, that feeling, that communication. You know, like when you and I finished conversing, I was just vibrating. And I am again now because your your passion is, you know, palpable. Like we know it, we can feel it. Listeners can feel it. You know, you're doing great work out there. And I'm just, you know, I'm thrilled to be able to have a platform and, you know, help spread the word to whatever degree. I will tell you, I'll share a quick story with you that I was back in Lake Placid this summer and a friend of my sister's, my sister's a big fan of ATBS and of what you're doing. And her buddy showed up and his birthday had been not that long before. And he said, hey, check this out, like put these on. And we were out on the lake and I slid his glasses on. I was like, wow, those are spectacular. And oh, Costa O-Search. Oh, nice. It was awesome, right? Like, you know, so for listeners, go to osearch.org. You know, you've got some great sponsors, which you've talked about in the first episode. Follow the Instagram handle, you know, the Twitter handle, the Facebook page, the YouTube channel is where you want to go with your kids so you can watch all sorts of cool shark videos and science videos. But I mean, yeah, just get in the game, man. You can get on whatever platform works for you and then try to integrate it all like, you know, a little mix of it, and then you can evolve in the... So that's our attempt to constantly evolve the conversation from the person who's entering to the person who sees the story of our life. Oh, man, I love it. That's what those platforms are for, because some people are just entering, some people are deep in the conversation. So if you're following like O-Search, Instagram, Twitter, and you're really into O-Search, and you're looking at the sharks on the tracker, across those three platforms, you'll see us trying to evolve the conversation with people who've been in the game longer and creating a very warm welcome to people who are just entering in trying to help them come along in the conversation at their own pace as much as or as little as they're interested. And that's really what those things are for. And then they just become O-Search. Thank you for listening to ATBS, the podcast, and this episode with Chris Fisher. I encourage you to visit osearch.org, and that's O-C-E-A-R-C-H.org, to learn more about our oceans and the collaborative work Osearch is conducting to return them to abundance. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. And until next time, be kind and patient with yourself and others. <laughs>